This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. As governors across the U.S. consider whether to relax stay-at-home orders, I've heard many pitting it in the words politics and economics against the word science. So in California, Governor Gavin Newsom, I told the Los Angeles Times, quote, we are going to do the right thing, not judged by politics, not judged by protests, but by science. And as Governor Brian Kemp opened up Georgia, uh, you had Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms urge people to, quote, follow the data, look at the science, listen to healthcare professionals, and use your common sense. Similar calls to believe in science or, quote, listen to science are all over policy debates. They are all also all over social media fights on my timeline, and I'm sure yours as well. Well, what does it mean to actually, quote, believe in science? And does science have a unified answer to questions like who gets a ventilator or whether your child should go to summer camp? You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, I'm editorial director at Christianity Today. Morgan, is this conversation on your timeline as well at all? It definitely is, though I have to say that I sometimes (laughs) ignore things that I feel start to get past the point of engaging in discussion and born to the point, in my opinion, of making a point. You know, when you were reading these things of like believe in science or listen to science, kind of the reaction that I have to a little bit of that is when people say, just follow what the Bible says. And yes, but tell me more. Like, that it doesn't actually give you enough like information about what you're supposed to do. It's obviously not very nuanced way to look at something, but people definitely kind of seem to say both of these things with the same air of confidence and security. What you're saying is obviously correct and you can have tremendous amounts of spine, I guess, to take on the people that don't believe in this and then almost feel arrogant, right? When other people are not following whatever you believe to have been explicitly and very obviously laid out, be it science or the Bible or whatever we might look to for truth in a particular situation. So I wanted to have this conversation, I think, because it's not like science can't tell us important things about the world, but I actually think one of the ways to better communicate with each other is to be able to articulate what it can communicate that's true and not do so in too blanketed of a way. Absolutely. Yeah, I love what you said there about just do what the Bible says. Because like, well, the Bible says <laughs> care, for, care for the orphans and widows, so I guess we should stay home. But it says mm-hmm. greet each other with a holy kiss, so I guess maybe we should go out. A lot of human contact? I don't know. Yeah, Max, that is a, that is a good gut check. You know, I used to run this magazine called The Behemoth. It was a magazine about awe and wonder, but it had, a, it had an awful lot of science in there. We had a lot of 
questions about how to how to best treat science. Do we even talk about the word? Do we use the word science when talking about the various sciences? Is that word radioactive among among some of the people we were trying to reach with that magazine? Part of it is that these questions about the proper role of science and scientists have special resonance among conservative Christians. We've been debating about evolution for more than a century. Conservative Christians are uh, the group most likely to believe that, that climate change is a hoax. And I've been seeing you know, a number of studies about conservative Christians, both white evangelicals, black Protestants, having kind of... Uh, Unique, not unique, but uh, in in poll data, conservative Protestants have significantly different answers to questions than kind of the populace at large. You know, take a question about whether COVID-19 intentionally or unintentionally originated in a lab. In March, the Pew Research Center found that about 36% of conservative Protestants told the Pew Research Center, yes, they think that COVID-19 originated in a lab. That's significantly more than than the 29% of U.S. adults uh, surveyed thought. And atheists were extremely unlikely Mm -hmm. to think that coronavirus happened in a lab. When we ran a whole big article about this on on our on our website, Francis Collins of of the NIH had some comments. Uh, People can see that on the site. But more recently, there was a question about how to treat the infected. So I'm going to read kind of a, a kind of a long question here, Morgan. I'm curious how you might answer this question. As you may know. As a result of the coronavirus outbreak, some hospitals may not have enough ventilators for all the patients who need help breathing. If that happens, do you think the priority for critical care should be given to patients who doctors think are most likely to recover with treatment, which may mean that more people survive, but that some patients don't receive treatments because they're older or sicker? Or do you think that they should go to patients who are in the most need at the moment, which may mean fewer people overall survive, but doctors do not deny treatments based on age or health status? So that, that question of do you give it to the people who need it most or do you give it to the people who are most likely to recover? I don't know how you'd answer that question, Morgan. It's a tricky question. Yeah, I feel uh, very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very uncomfortable question. And in the general populace, it was, it was split about even a strong majority of, of white evangelicals and black Protestants were likely to say that doctors should give it to the people who need them most, even if it means that fewer people survive, but the treatments are not denied on the basis of, of age or health. So be, be as equitable as possible. Don't give it to the people who, you know, don't make some calculus about people who are most likely to survive. Atheists, significantly on the other side, strong majority over there tended to say that ventilators should go to patients who are the most likely to recover. That, that to me, brings us back to this to this question of, you know, like, does, quote unquote, science have an answer to questions like that? You know, and then what questions is science good at answering? What questions is it not good at answering? When should we be skeptical when we hear terms like scientists say or, quote, the science is clear? And when, you know, when should we be skeptical and when should we pay extra attention and let scientists lead the discussion? Morgan, do you want to introduce our our guest today? Absolutely. So our guest today is Cy Gart. He is a biochemist who has taught at New York University, the University of Pittsburgh and Rutgers University. And he is also the author of the Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. He's also the editor-in-chief of God and Nature, which is a magazine that's from the American Scientific Affiliation. If you are familiar at all with his name, it might be also because he just wrote his testimony for the March issue of Christianity Today. Hi, Sai. How are you? Fine. How are you? Where are you based from right now? I'm in Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. All right. What's going on in your state? I've been tracking it. Maryland has been in lockdown, but it looks as if we're either just past or at the peak, and we're starting to see, you know, a, a lessening of 
case numbers. So that's a good sign. Yeah, I think the biggest headline that I saw from Maryland was about this test, the fact that you guys got about 500,000 coronavirus tests from South Korea. Our governor, Larry Hogan, who who was a Republican, has been very proactive in this. Uh, this is a blue state, so it's mostly Democrats, but he's he's always won re-election. He, he's been very proactive and very assertive in, in promulgating policies that have been very, very good for the people of the state. Well, we're glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. You know, before we get to some of these uh, questions about, you know, what, you know, quote unquote, science can tell us in some of these uh, policy discussions, I want to talk for a second about your testimony, which I mean, we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. People have really loved reading it. People are really grateful. I really enjoyed it as well. In your testimony, you wrote that your journey to Christianity came by asking a lot of questions and that science didn't quite hold the keys to unlocking all the mysteries. And then you also, in that same testimony, you wrote that an important part of finally attending church was meeting Christians who were, as you put it, smart and scientifically minded. And I was just curious if you could kind of tease that out for us a little bit more. Like, what were some of the questions that you were frustrated that science couldn't answer? And what were some of the you know, science-minded questions that you were eager to hear Christians asking? The questions that I didn't get much answer to from my scientific studies and my scientific research were actually scientific questions. I already knew that science is not made to answer questions that are not part of, you know, how we understand the natural world. They're not, it, science is not built to probe into questions of morality or, you know, romance or why music, why some music appeals to me. And, uh, you know, all these questions of human nature and human characteristics that are really, you can guess at them, but we can't really address them scientifically. And I was even told this by my father, who was a very strict atheist uh, his whole life, and he was a scientist. And he said, you know, there are only a few questions that science can answer, so don't expect it to answer everything. So that's where I was. But I thought that science, the methods of science would answer all the questions of the natural world. And in fact, what I discovered, and this was very disturbing to me, is that science itself in, in terms of both physics and later in biology, when I was studying them, was giving me answers that were basically new questions. And they were not giving the real answers to the question of, you know, how does reality work? All we have to go is, is look at the results of quantum mechanics, which are very strange, which don't make a lot of sense, certainly not in line with what we usually think of as materialism. And so that kind of threw me off because, you know, I thought at least the scientific method would tell us everything we need to know about the natural world. And I began to question that. Was there any particular question that really you came up against, or was it a bunch of questions? There were several, but I, I, I could just mention one that was important, which was I learned, I learned about the uncertainty principle, which had been discovered in the 1920s, but had not been spread throughout the population very much. So I learned it for the first time in college. And what that says is that there are things we cannot know. We, we just can't know. It, and it's not a question that we don't have the method yet or we don't have the, the tools to, to know these things, but there are things that we must remain uncertain about. And that principle is critical for many parts. It's definitely true. It's critical for many things in our modern technology, including you know the, the way we're talking to each other. It's, it's why radioactivity exists. So what is that? How could that be? That I, I had thought that we could learn everything. It was just a matter of time and we would have all questions answered and have all knowledge. No, science itself tells us that that is not possible. 
as you asked the, as you said, you you were drawn to a number of things that were you know kind of beautiful. You saw Christians doing doing good things, but then it also says you know you uh, you didn't quite hit church until you heard you know until you were engaged with these Christians that you that you knew that you said were smart and had kind of science minded minds. Tell me a little bit about that. Like what were you what were you drawn to, and what what were the questions you were asking where you wanted to kind of make sure that they were what set someone up as scientifically minded in, in your mind, or or sufficiently like these people were okay, and maybe I should see what they're about. When I first came to faith, it was due to some very personal experiences that really left me no choice but to say to confess that I'm a Christian and Jesus is my Savior, and that's it. But I was terrified at doing that because I didn't know any other scientists who were Christians, and I thought I was the only one, and I didn't know how I was going to function at that point. You mentioned Francis Collins, and in fact, I've later come to know him, but at that time, I read his book, The Language of God, and that was a revelation to me because I said to myself, well, at least there's two of us, you know, (laughs) and and I already knew that Francis Collins was at the time and still is one of the leading scientists in in the same field as me in genetics and, and biology. And then I joined this organization, the ASA. I hadn't been baptized yet. I was still a, a sort of a secret Christian. I started meeting many really smart scientists in all fields, astronomy and in my own field and geology. And I count many of them, I don't know, dozens of them to be close friends. And then at that point, I, I decided, okay, it's time for me to actually go to a church and, <laughs> and be open and get baptized. I haven't looked back since then. I mean, I'm sure at, during this journey, you were you were familiar with some of the history of whether you want to call it antagonism, or there's kind of a caricature of, of evangelical or Christian attitudes towards science, and there's kind of a, but there is kind of a reality, a little different than the caricature, but there is a reality there. What was your experience with some of that, both in your you know, atheist mode and then, and then as you became more involved in your church? I had almost no experience with that as an atheist. I mean, I, I, I knew there were different kinds of Christianity, but I was and I was vaguely aware that there was Catholicism and Protestantism, but that's, that's about <laughs> right. as far as I had gotten. More recently, that has changed a lot. I have engaged with a number of young earth creationists and a number of uh, both evangelicals, all spectrums. Some of these engagements have been debates. Some have been just discussions. And I do have a a pretty strong sense that I understand to some degree where they're coming from. Some of these people are scientists, but most of them are not. I have some understanding of of where they stand in in relation to science and in relation to biblical interpretation and theology. Sure. I alluded to this before, but but as you've kind of, you know, obviously ASA is one of these organizations. It's a network of Christians who are in, in the sciences, been around for, I forget how long, but it's been around you know considerably longer than Christianity Today. I remember that ASA was, you know, heavily featured in some of those early issues of Christianity Today. And I'm just curious, like, you know, how, what would be your characterization of evangelical Christians' relationship with science? Obviously, it goes back before you, but both now and kind of as you understand the, the, the history, what are some of the forces bringing evangelical Christians and science together? What are some of the things that remain pulling those things apart? I think historically, we could go back to the end of the 19th century, really, when, when two, there were two developments that were both very powerful and I would say somewhat destructive. And, and one was, the origin of the of the young earth six day literal interpretation of Genesis, which came originally from, as far as I understand it, from Seventh Day Adventists, and then eventually resulted in its 
absorption into the Southern Baptist Convention. The other event that happened around the same time was the publication of a couple of books that were both titled something like The War Between Science and Religion or you know, The Conflict Between the Two, which was a very revolutionary development because before that time, almost every scientist was Christian and, and there was no con- concept for people like Louis Pasteur and, and Faraday and Maxwell all of these scientists of the 19th century, they were all Christians. And they assumed, as their predecessors had, Robert Boyle and others, that they were studying science to learn how God's creation worked. And now we all of a sudden, we had these books coming out saying that you can't, you know, it's a big conflict. You, you can't have science and religion both. One is right, one is wrong. And that was a disaster. And, and it sparked, along with other things, of course, changing cultural mores during that period. And and it sparked this sort of rise in atheism, which, you know, Bertrand Russell was one of the founders of that. And of course, more recently, with the rise of what we call the new atheism, which is quite different from the atheism I had when I was young, we have that warfare at, at a high pitch. In response to all of this, the religious community, and I would you know, evangelical, fundamental, even even people who might consider themselves liberal Christians reacted in a way of saying, well, wait a minute, e- either they said things like, science is not going to tell us how we should live, so why are we listening? We need the Bible. Or even more liberal views like, well, yeah, science is, is right and true, and it, it gives us true facts, but it doesn't contradict the Bible in a way that we have to choose one or the other. We have to interpret both. And we're seeing that currently with COVID situation, which we can get into in a minute. But, you know, science has to interpret things. Theologists have to interpret things. Biblical scholars interpret that. Everybody has to interpret things. And there have been a lot of reactions to this very divisive split within the culture on both sides so that we have some evangelicals who just just don't want to hear anything that's scientific, don't want to learn what it is, not interested in it. And then on the other side, we have atheists who just mock and scorn the whole idea of any idea of religion or even spirituality or thing that transcends the position that, that we hear from people like Harris and Dawkins that only scientific facts are real and nothing else is important. And, and that's that's a philosophical view that most scientists don't have, but it has spread from the atheist community into popular public consciousness. So, Sai, I'm I'm really curious. I think for instances where there are these really deep divides, there's usually blood on both sides, hands, so to speak. And I was just wondering if you could give us a sense of some of the ways that the scientific community, or perhaps I honestly don't know of which I'm trying to speak here maybe a couple prominent scientists or celebrity scientists, essentially, if there have been some things that have happened on that end of things that have furthered this distrust? I think the answer is yes. I, I think that some scientists, but I would say even more so, atheists who are, quote, into science, okay, they may not be practicing scientists, but they read a lot. They're online a lot. <laughs> I've met a lot of them online. They think they're defending science, and the way they do that is to attack religion in general, evangelical Christianity in particular. That's not a good way to have a dialogue. That's not a good way to to make progress. So they get attacked back. You know, I've had two or three debates with some very convinced fundamentalist 
evangelical Christians. Uh, Kent Hovind is one. Uh, there have been a few others. My intent has always been to look at these issues from a point of view that respects all positions. And being a Christian, of course, I was in better shape to have this kind of conversation than, for example, some of the more famous YouTube atheists who simply just yell and scream and <laughs> didn't call people names. A lot of folks in the Christian community tend to, and this is perfectly natural, happens on all sides, tend to think of the opposition as being not just those atheists who are speaking basically philosophically about what they think, but they kind of lump it in with the entire scientific community. And that's a mistake because the scientific community is not at all a monolithic group. It's not well known, but when a new thing occurs in science, when somebody writes a paper that's kind of revolutionary or there's a new disease or something that's brand new, it takes a long time for scientists to all get together and come up with a consensus of what's going on and what's real. And we saw that in February and early March when some scientists, including myself and many others, even some who are you know infectious disease specialists, didn't quite get it right with this COVID-19. We really didn't, we didn't know enough. There wasn't enough data. And in fact, the truth is there still isn't in many ways. It takes time for a scientific consensus to develop. And that's something a lot of people don't realize. And I've heard some folks get upset because you know the line has changed. And it changes because we're, we're constantly learning new things. And it, it takes a lot of effort to learn what's really going on in any scientific field. It takes effort and it takes time. I'm glad you brought up the word consensus because I think I hinted that about that a little bit when I was speaking earlier. And when people will say stuff like the science says, okay, what does that mean? Should we be concerned? Can anyone ever say the science says? Or is there always additional context that that needs? There almost always is additional context, I would say. Now, if we say that science says that gravity is a force of nature, that's fine. Okay. We, there, there isn't any argument about that except for people who are frankly nutcases or the earth is round or you know something like that. But in many areas, saying science says is premature. And this especially applies to many issues of biology. It applies to, for example, to evolution. We do have a lot of information about evolution, and we do understand how it works. But there's also a lot of controversy. Even within the scientific field, even within the field of evolutionary biology, there's a lot of controversy going on. The idea that science says means suggesting that it's easy to come up with a consensus, uniform, finished version of what is true. That's a problem because that's very rarely the case. And in fact, that's exactly what happened with me on my journey. And I, I mentioned this in the book is that one of the things you find out if you're actually a working scientist and you try to get answers is almost every answer brings up new questions. So we never actually finish learning anything in any field of science. We, we're continually trying to get deeper and learn more. And to me, that fact and no one can deny that that's a fact, that fact to me points to something very mysterious, very interesting, and helped me along my way in rejecting materialism and thinking about alternatives such as divine design. I mean, obviously gravity, like we can say, okay, gravity, we get that. 
But beyond that, I mean, every discipline has areas where there's a conventional wisdom or consensus. And then there's always people who kind of push against or disagree with that consensus. I mean, I'm sure I could probably go out and find someone in, you know, who has some sort of physics credentials who may be able to go out and say, actually, gravity doesn't explain all these things. So uh, apart from the gravity discussion, how do we listen to dissenters and gadflies rightly? How do we know, you know, because we're non-experts, right? And and like we get kind of get the gravity thing. I mean, maybe beyond something that we learned in like junior high science, how do we as non-experts know when there's real debate in a field and when someone is just being a, a gadfly, when someone is really an outlier? Sometimes these conversations are truly under debate and sometimes there's really a consensus and there are a number of moneyed interests or crackpots who will try to convince us that, that a gadfly represents a significant stream within a field. So what, what are some of the tools we can use to, to tell those apart? First of all, scientists are not drawn to, to come up with a consensus. If anything, if you want to become famous in science, the best way to do it quickly is to come up with a counter view to the consensus and show that it's right. So there's no particular pressure to be in the consensus if you can come up with some alternative which has evidence for it. Now, how do you tell when that's real or it's just somebody who's a little off, you know, a little off <laughs> who's saying something? That's not easy for the public, but I will give I will give you one clue, one tool that can be helpful. And that is if you hear someone say, I have it all figured out, here's <laughs> what the answer is. And it explains everything you want to know, and that's it. We're done. He's wrong, he or she. That that never happens <laughs> in reality. This happened to me once, a little anecdote. I was, I was at a seminar, a science seminar at my university, and a guy was speaking who was a former colleague. And at some point, it all sounded very strange because every experiment he did was was positive. Everything everything went along with with showing how his ideas were right. And that's very rare, very unusual. Usually some of your experiments you can't explain, you know. And, and so I turned to a friend of mine who knew him better than I did, who was sitting next to me, and I said, what, what's going on? And he said, oh, didn't you hear? He got a job working for such and such company, and this is part of their research proposal to put out a new drug. So he wasn't talking science, he was advertising. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like every scientist who's ever testified in court, and I've done that, knows that you always get into a problem with the lawyer, because the lawyer wants to know what is true that's good for my client. <laughs> and, and, you know, we always say things like, well, this is probably true, but we're not sure the probability is such and such. It might be, you don't want to hear that if you're, if you're a lawyer or a judge, you want to know yes or no. That whole, if you hear anything like that, where you have somebody saying, okay, here's the answer. I'm sure of it. And there's nothing else to do. We're done. No, that's wrong. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I, I guess one question I have is, you know, I, I see a lot of, of the flip side as well, where you have someone, and again, often driven by moneyed interests, people coming in, attempting to kind of muddy the waters and to say that science, you know, sometimes isn't settled where it is. So, I mean, you know, the classic here would be cigarettes, you know, the, the, the people who, you know, you can get credentialed scientists coming out and saying cigarettes don't cause, there's no connection between cigarettes and, and lung cancer. And I guess other than knowing, other than like having some sort of database you can go to and being like, is this person somehow on a payroll, which even then you don't exactly know. Are there any clues that you would recommend looking at to know like, hey, look, this guy is being, this guy's being paid to, to sell you a bill of goods not just to say I've got it all figured out, but to claim that nobody has anything figured out. The answer, the answer is if you have in any field, and you know, I, I've seen this, for example, in, in the climate change is, issue, which is you know, very contentious as well. And if somebody is making a claim that the general consensus, the general scientific consensus is wrong or not completely correct, that's fine. That's not a problem in itself. But you have to have very strong evidence that that's the case. And then you need to have the people who have or who are part of that consensus look at that evidence. They have to also be objective. And if everything is going well, they will say, well, you know what? We may have to change our models because that's a good point. And that does happen. Uh, that's what's happening in evolution right now. What's called a neo-Darwinian synthesis really wasn't very satisfying, and there are now some very new ideas about how evolution works. It's somewhat radical. They're getting absorbed into the ever-changing, or I should say, ever-evolving <laughs> paradigm for how evolution works, and that's the way science should go. The problem is when you have economic or political interests that are pulling in any direction. That's not part of the scientific enterprise, and history has told us over and over and over again that mixing politics, economics, even religion into the practice of science never works. 
<laughs> I like I like how you said history tells us because that that, <laughs> that can be a whole second podcast is when should we believe when history because you know you can find yeah but I agree there that, you can just, just you can find examples from history for sure yeah you can just Google Lysenko L Y S E N K O and that'll tell you all you need to know about the history of that well I, so that that does take us to, to that question of of people pitting, you know, discipline against discipline, history tells us versus uh, science tells us, or, you know, in, in some of these COVID-19 discussions, you know, we often hear, as we said at the top of the show, people pitting, you know, science against the economy or, you know, science versus economics or even science against history, I guess, in some cases, do we, do we take out all of our lessons from the 1918 flu pandemic or do we try to leave that aside because this is a unique situation that is different than the uh, 1918 situation? Anyway, economics economics and science both have something to say about human life and thriving. I mean, are they in conflict? Are they in dialogue? Are they in tandem? Is it like a dance? Does one take the lead? You know, what? How do we make sure we're asking the right questions of the right disciplines? Well, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, what, what Morgan was, was saying about how do you make decisions? Are all decisions science-based? And the answer clearly is no. Most scientists don't want to be the people who make the decisions. They want to give you the information. And it, it's the scientific information. So there's no question that, for example, that this pandemic is very dangerous and very frightening. And medically, you know, we still have a lot of questions that need to be answered. But there's no question that it's it's a very bad disease. It's brand new, and you know, we don't have antibodies, so it's very bad. It's also true that the economy is suffering. Those two facts are not in conflict with each other. That, but they both are things that leaders, political leaders, have to take into account to decide what to do. And science is doesn't trump economics. It's not a question of which is more important. That has to be decided on at the level of the polity, not, not at the level of the scientist. I, I don't think Tony Fauci has ever gotten up and said, I don't care about the economy. We have to do this now. He has been, he and the others are advising task force, the president, governors as to what are the things we need to do scientifically to contain this illness and to do the best we can to come out of it. And the same is true for history. I mean, we need to know historical facts to make decisions. And the historical facts, the economic facts, and the scientific facts are all things that should go into carefully considered response. So one of the larger themes of the past couple of years has been the fact that Americans in general trust institutions less than they used to, and they don't trust experts as much. And I would also say that that has happened alongside of the growth of the Internet. The fact that there are so many perspectives and so many voices out there. I'm curious if we can just be a little bit practical for a second. For someone who wants to kind of responsibly understand what's going on right now with the COVID-19 situation, but also doesn't have time to spend an hour each day reading through studies that are coming out or some of these scientific journals, how might you recommend that they engage in this and how might you tell them who they can trust or what are some guidelines for that? First of all, let me just say that the internet, of course, is a great thing, but it also has a lot of misinformation. There's no control over it. The way science works is what's called peer review. Uh, I, I should mention that I, I retired a few years ago from working at the NIH, where I was one of the supervisors of the peer review system to award grants. So I know a lot about this. 
we use the peer review system because it's the, although it has flaws, it's the best system that exists for publication and for giving grants. It's, it's not perfect, but it's better than anything that exists on the internet. The NIH in general comes up with fact sheets or pages that tell you uh, what's the, what's the reality, what's the scientific consensus, what's the real scientific view on any issue that's available to the public. So if you want to know what's going on, and it doesn't have to be just COVID-19, it can be any scientific, especially biomedical scientific issue. Take a look at the NIH and just search for that your question, and that will give you the best scientific answer that we have at the moment, because that is culled from all of the separate different studies. And it will tell you, you know, if, if there's controversy, it will say that. It'll say most people now think such and such, but there are some dissenting voices which think so and so. That'll give you the best view that, that, that you can have. R- right now, if you really want to know what's going on with COVID-19, you could look at the NIAID website, which is the, the, the institute that Tony Fauci leads. CDC has, a, has good information. The problem that we're having is that the major institution that people don't trust is the U.S. government, right? And these are all government websites. But let me tell you and let me tell the audience that the people who work at the NIH are not, they're government employees. I was paid by the government, but we're not the part of the government that most people don't like, which is, you know, elected officials and, you know, people who are politicians. That's not who the technical people are at either the NIH or the CDC as soon as you get below the very top level. It's trustable. Even though, you know, you may not like the government, whatever that is, that should not stop you from trusting the governmental science outlets. I'm curious because there is this idea that evangelical Christians have been trained over the last hundred years to be skeptical of, of kind of scientific claims, right? And and there is also within, for various and sundry reasons, a skepticism of, of government or especially big government. And there was a kind of a political conservatism that for various, <laughs> a whole lot of reasons we don't have time to get into, went hand in hand with religious conservatism. And I just, I wonder like, what is, what is our hope for our churches, for our Christian communities right now? Is it to rebuild trust? Is it to have a skepticism in the right things? Is it, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here a little bit to hold in tension this idea that love hopes all things, trust all things with, with also the, you know, test, test the spirits. What's the Christian response to kind of this loss of faith in institutions as a government and also a long-term loss of trust in scientific knowledge? At the same time that there's distrust of evangelical Christians, I, all of these things are uh, kind of are, are swimming around in my head, and I'm just wondering, like you, you're, you're, you are engaged at, at at your magazine and other things in trying to draw bridges between Christian Christian communities and the scientific community, and I'm just wondering how much of that is a trust building exercise, and how much of it is like, no, it's not really about trust; it's about something else. Like, what is it that you're trying to build? Yeah, well, that's a a great question. Of course, I have the answer. It's very easy, just a few words. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have the answer. I'll t- I-, I tell you what my answer is. My answer is trust in Jesus Christ. You frame the question very well as a question that is one that is 
very painful, very difficult and scary in a way. Uh, we're, we're in a very difficult and scary time and not just the COVID virus, but this whole idea of the divisions and the, sometimes the actual hatred and anger that you see coming out from people. And that's when I see that, that's when I pray. That's when I, I go to Christ and I say, Lord, take this burden from us. I mean, help us. What you said at the end about people like the ASA and many other organizations, uh, including many evangelical, uh, including the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, which, where I've actually participated in meetings. And, and there are many organizations, not to mention Christianity Today, which is <laughs> a major force. That's what we have to do. We, we have to work at this. We have to work at building bridges. And, and that's an image that Francis Collins Collins often uses is we need to build bridges within the Christian community to show them or to at least try to convince them that a bridge is better than a than a you know a huge gap between two sides of a, of a divide that is unbridgeable. That's not easy, obviously. It takes a huge amount of work. It takes a lot of listening. One of the things I love about the ASA is it does not have any theological position other than the tenets of Christianity. It doesn't, it's, ne- it's neither older, new earth, young earth, old earth, or, or, you know, evolution and creation or ID. Everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter. The same is true for God in Nature and for the, the academic journal, Proceedings in Science and Christian Faith that the ASA publishes. And, and there are other organizations like uh, BioLogos and Reasons to Believe, Reasonable Faith. These are all organizations with, with different viewpoints, but who are now talking to each other. Reasons to Believe is Old Earth, not necessarily pro-evolution. BioLogos is very pro-evolution, uh, believes in, a, in an old Earth as well. And there are even people within the Young Earth creationist movement who are now dialoguing with all of the above. So if, if we can all dialogue with each other, we don't have to agree. I mean, you know, <laughs> we already know that not all Protestant denominations do not all agree with each other on every point of theology, but that doesn't mean that we can't commune together, worship together, pray together, and you know, know that the truth is with Jesus Christ. And, and that if, I think if we, if we hold that close to our hearts, and as you said, love, which was his great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, we'll be okay in the end. I just have a final question. It was really encouraging to hear you just give some examples of how scientists, specifically believers, are being able to find common ground during this time. Most of our listeners are not scientists themselves. They probably, though, are in lots of contact with folks who have all different perspectives on science. And I would not be surprised if more than one of them found themselves exasperated at trying to communicate things. So given that at the beginning, we talked about kind of the futility of saying something like science says this or science proves this or do this because of science. Would you have any other advice about how to dialogue or maybe showcase some findings that they are finding in a way that is not going to be read as hostile or harsh? I have some thoughts of my own, but I, I've also listened to a scientist who was working in the South named Amanda Glaze. She she gave some very good talks about how you exactly do what you just asked. Her key thing is listen. Listen to what people think and, and what they believe. Your beliefs may differ. Your ideas of what's true and what's not true may differ. But if you listen to each other carefully, 
and can treat each other after doing that with respect. And there are many examples of this, people with completely opposite views who have managed to come together, work for a common goal, which in this case is cause of Christ. And if we can keep building that in this country and among people from all different beliefs, and I, and I have to say that I have, in my Twitter following, I have thousands of young earth creationists and evangelicals. They don't yell at me when I say something they don't like. Not anymore, anyway. I, I think it's possible to do it. And I, and I think respectful listening and understanding that all of our disputes, all of our disagreements fade to nothing when we consider Jesus on the cross. Just think of that. And his resurrection showed us and should continue to show us that, you know, that there's some things that are important. And what's important is love, is, is redemption, salvation. You know, we're all on the same page there. The other things are important. They're not salvation issues. I have never had an opponent in a debate, including the most vocal, you know, anti-evolutionists and the most vocal young earth creationists ever say to me, well, if you don't accept my view, you're not Christian, you're, you're, you won't be saved. Because we all know that's, that's not the point. We're, we're arguing about interesting issues which are not in the main course. And I'm speaking from a former atheist. And, you know, when somebody gets converted, as I was, when I, when I first saw the light of truth in Jesus Christ, it, it, was, it was blindingly real. You know, what I always say is it brought to light the, the famous saying of C.S. Lewis, I, I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by its light, by the light of Christ, I see everything else. Well, thank you so much, Sai, for engaging in this discussion with us. For people who have feedback, we invite you to give that. We're at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com if you want to send us an email or we are at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we have a chance to hear from our listeners. Ted, you and I recorded an episode last week about the state of never Trumpers here in 2020, and we got a decent amount of listener feedback, and I thought we should read some of the mail that we got because we heard from some longtime listeners. We did. So the first person that I am going to read their letter from is Chuck Maxwell, and he wrote and said that he has listened to the show for a number of years. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for listening. This is an excerpt of his email. He says, I'm not a pro-Trumper, nor am I a never-Trumper. I actually think Trump is a jerk and didn't vote for him. Your guest was anti-Trump from the onset. It would have been nice to have also had someone who represented a view more in line with Al Mohler's so that the listener could think even more beyond your personal or presented, quote, hashtags and hot takes. To promote using moral characters, the more important necessary factor in choosing a political candidate over biblical convictions as the primary factor is only one way to think. Why is character more important than conviction? Are they not equally important, equally Christian? Whose definition of competency are we using? Even with his polarizing and offensive ways, some of us think the jerk has actually been more competent than he gets credit for. I realize Trump is the easy target, but it would have also been helpful to hear how the French reasoning applies to the Democrat candidate as well. The same reason to oppose Trump should also be applied to other politicians. Are they not as self-centered and self-serving and manipulative in their self-exposure? In spite of his jerkness, we cannot accuse Trump of hiding his true character. What role does biblical conviction play for the Christian voter when a candidate is openly opposed to biblical morality? To use a statement French himself used, there are plenty of well-informed, rational-thinking, biblically-minded Christ followers like Mueller himself who would disagree with French's stance. 
Thank you for writing, Chuck. Indeed. And here's a letter from Allison Smith-Gordon. I subscribed to your publications several years ago when seeking ways to renew my mind and spirit. It was a joy to read your articles and to listen to your quick-to-listen podcast. On many issues, you have helped me balance my faith and contemporary culture. In my thinking, CT has lost its way, spending too much time and energy wading into politics, beginning with Mark Galley's controversial editorial back in December, and just this week with the Quick to Listen podcast, condemning Dr. Albert Mueller's reluctant support for President Trump. I'm no Trump supporter. I sat out the election in 2016, but I see little alternative these days given the DNC's militant pro-abortion platform. Political shaming is expected in secular news coverage, but I expected better from my Christian news sources. With a heavy heart, I will not be renewing my subscriptions on NACT platforms. All right. Those are just a few of the letters we, we got this week. Thank you for everyone who has written to us. I did get some feedback that folks are having trouble figuring out how to email us. I'm just going to give people a heads up and say that email addresses podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. That's a great place to send us email or you can go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts as well. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, do you want to go? You know, Morgan, you and I and the team have talked about the Groundhog Day nature of COVID-19 isolation and how these days kind of run together and you wake up every day and say, oh, so it's, it's the same kind of thing today. Some of my precious moments uh, are a little bit repetitive. The things that give me joy are still the things that have been giving me joy. And I will say the birds at my bird feeder have been giving me great joy. I got our, our bird feeder and I got a couple of additional bird feeders for Christmas. Well, I can't go out bird watching because my favorite bird watching sites are, uh, are closed right now. And that's completely aggravating. But I do get to watch the birds outside my window. And that that is great joy. Likewise, there is a wonderful board game that I've been playing with my family called Wingspan. It is a bird-themed board game. It was kind of a hot board game of, of last year, maybe two years ago. I've been playing that. I love it. Strongly recommend it. Anyone who's into engine building games or or just a, just a pleasant a pleasant board game to play. It calms me even as it is a little competitive. So that's that's my that's my precious moment. I'm online on Twitter at Ted Olson. That's O L S. Morgan Lee, what was your precious moment this week? One of them was reading a great book. It came out a couple years ago. It is called The Fisherman. Does that name ring? Yeah, absolutely. I've got that. You know, I I grabbed that book when I was going to live in Kenya. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe stuck in the recesses of my Kindle or something like that. I I intended to read it. How, How was it? So yeah, so it's by an author named Chigozi Obiyama. He is Nigerian and If anyone who's listening has ever read Things Fall Apart, there are definitely echoes of Things Fall Apart that are in this particular book. But it's the story of four brothers. And I think I was just (laughs) a little bit shocked by how much the author just steadily turns up the heat. It's one of these books that you realize it's going to be intense, but maybe not (laughs) quite as violent and dark until you're like, whoa, the author just did that and that and that and that. And gosh, yeah. Also, it's extremely readable. It, it has a lot of beautiful images. A lot of it is, or the book is told by one of the brothers who compares a lot of things that happened to his family with different animals and creatures. And it's just visually very interesting to think about all those metaphors. It, it was one of those books that I was definitely sad that I wasn't taking it in an English class to kind of just discuss all the imagery in there. I definitely recommend it. It definitely gives you some insight into what 1990s Nigerian 
politics was like at that time that made me more intrigued and learning more. And it's also just very readable and good. Can I ask you a quick question? Because, you know, I'm also looking for books to read and I think Mm -hmm. I may have already purchased this one. Is it going to bum me out? I mentioned it's pretty intense, but is it is it one of these books that's particularly hard to read? I'll just say this much. The writing is really beautiful. Okay. So I feel like even if the subject matter does get darker, you're not reading something that just feels like insubstan- unsubstantial. Yeah, sure. Like kind of it leaves you like feeling like, oh, I just ate paper or something like that. I think you will still feel like I read a good book, even if it is kind of intense. Yeah. So I don't know. Yes. If you're in the right mood, I guess. But I, <laughs> but I think it it feels like a a good work of art that That's was great. put together. I just wanted to add one note that I borrowed this book from my former roommate, and when I went to go get it from her, she said to me, "Why are you borrowing books from me? Don't you have a lot of books in your basement right now?" That was hilarious because I have had a lot of books in my basement for the past five years that I completely forgot about, (laughs) 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 including books that I wanted to read. There was a, I've been really wanting to read books by Octavia Butler and there were books by Octavia Butler in my basement. So (laughs) that's very embarrassing. Well, as I said, I'm in the same boat because I've got the fisherman tucked away somewhere to read. So there you go. Twitter, M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Right on. Sai, what was your precious moment of the week? Well, this past Sunday, I was asked to deliver the message at a church, not my own church, the United Methodist Church in Virginia, not far. Of course, that was done online, and I was a little nervous about it. I, I delivered a few other sermons, but not not to people who I didn't know. <laughs> so I was kind of nervous. But before that, before it was my time to get on, the choir and instrumental group of the church began playing psalms. They sang some other songs, including a song called Oceans, which is one of my favorite songs. It was beautifully done and inspiring, and it reminded me of something that happened a week earlier. So I've kind of lost track of time exactly, but and that is that I found a reference to a the singing of a hymn, one of my favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. And it was done, it was one of the first examples of a large group of people singing together at home. And it was so beautiful that I I really got just swept away with the emotion of it. And I realized watching the faces of the people singing and seeing all the different places they were and how beautiful it all came together, that is as horrible as this moment is, and we will look back on it, and see all the agony we went through in various ways. But there's also some beauty here. And isn't that a mark of God's reality in our world? He gives us something to get us through. And in this case, it was music and this amazing spirit of these people singing this hymn together in the midst of the darkness. And to me, that that is the meaning of Christianity. It's a light in the darkness. That's great. Do you want to remind people of your book and also where they can find you outside of this, Sai? forgot to mention, I was speaking to the church because of the book. It's called The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And it documents how I started as a very militant anti-theist and ended up a very devout Christian. All the steps I went through to get from one place to the other. It's published by Kriegel Press. The foreword is by Alistair McGrath, the British theologian. It's gotten some good reviews, so I'm happy about that. I'm on Twitter at Saigart. Saigart, that's my handle. 
Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much, Sai, for joining us. This episode of Quick to Listen is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is by Bumia Shola. The music is by Sweeps. If you want to support the show, become a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. You can do so by going to orderct.com slash podcast. If you want to support the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is available, though, wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.